This is Know It All, the ABCs of Education, a platform of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC, where we empower our listeners with insightful information about equity in education. I am your host, Allison R. Brown of Allison Brown Consulting, ABC. I'm a civil rights attorney with a focus on equity in public education. Keep up with me on my website at allisonbrownconsulting.com. And be sure to follow Know It All at blogtalkradio.com. Today we're talking about addiction, particularly in teenagers. My guest is Rufus Brown, the director of Steps to Life, a transitional housing program that serves men who are recovering addicts. Rufus has been counseling and supporting addicts and recovering addicts for more than 10 years and has worked with teenage boys who have found themselves caught up in the addiction nightmare. Rufus is also my dad. Good morning, Rufus. Welcome to Know It All. Good morning, Allison. Will you first describe for us what Steps to Life is? Absolutely. Our Steps to Life program here is allows us to provide a structured environment. Right now it's for men, eventually it might be for, uh, might be for women also. But we, we support, where men support each other as they try to transition back into a uh, productive environment. And transition being the key word of as a, as a man returns from whatever circumstances has disrupted his life, he's trying to get his family back, his job back, and we try to help him figure out how to do that and deal with the daily stresses of life without so many um, severe consequences and as far as behavior. That's what we did. So where did where did the idea for Steps to Life come from? In the at least here in our state of Indiana and in the in the addictions world, there is a tremendous need for for all kinds of services, and one of those is a safe haven, if you will, for somebody who has made a decision to try to get his or her life back on track and uh, be able to do that and still function. I mean, not be not be you know sequestered, but to be a functioning party of daily part of daily living and do the normal things a man needs a person needs to do to get their life back, but at the same time be able to take care for themselves. And so, this has been a a dream of mine for several years, and, and uh, we finally got it to come to fruition. And uh, right now we're seeing how well it's working. So I wonder if you would talk a little bit about um, what the manifestations and behaviors of drug abuse and addiction are. The, to, the, to, the, to the average person... I, and, we're, and I'm thinking in terms of families that have, you know, children or teenagers or, but even mm-hmm. with adults, probably the first thing you look for is uh, withdrawal, mm-hmm. like social withdrawal. If, if somebody has normally, you know, been at the dinner table, you know, for, for the last year or two, and then suddenly they're not to be found, Um Mm-hmm. Or you look for other erratic behavior. I, the number one thing I'd say is um, for anybody that's paying attention to that is trust your instincts. If your instincts tell you something is wrong, it probably is. Mm-hmm. And then, are there are the manifestations and behaviors different depending on the type of drug, and is there a difference between 
those who are addicted to drugs and those who are addicted to alcohol? Well, to, to the first part of your question, yeah, the manifestations are different, but under the umbrella of addiction, it's all the same. For, let me give you an example. If if a um, if a child is sniffing glue, which happens a lot more than people think, you know, you're probably going to be able to tell if you if you find them under the influence. Whereas some of the other designer kind of drugs that I've, which I've heard lately that you can purchase, like even at a service station, there are some herbs and stuff you can mix. You might not be able to tell from that person's behavior that they're you know that far out of out of norm. And so yeah, but it's it's still addiction. Let me let me just underline that it's all addiction. Even drugs and alcohol, they're both addictions. One is considered a wet drug. One is considered a dry drug. But yes, there are different manifestations, and they are more difficult to detect. Mhm. And in teenagers, what what are behaviors? What can educators and parents look for in teenagers who might be addicted to drugs or alcohol? Without giving you know detailed instructions, what I'd suggest is um, remember that that in teenagers or, or young people. The number one thing in their lives are peer groups. Uh, peer groups are going to drive their. I mean, you can. So I'd say look at their look at their friends. You know, uh, look at who they're hanging out with, and, and and if you're uncomfortable with that, then you might need to do some further further looking at that too. Um, or if your other symptoms like um, Mood swings, up and down. You know, one day they're elated, and the next day they're. And I'm not. I, I am not by any means medically qualified to diagnose anything, but mm-hmm. but look for mood swings and uh, or behaviors that you had just haven't seen are especially becoming more secretive and withdrawing from you. And um, but I would start with the peer groups because that a lot of times that's where a lot of a lot of uh, these things originate from, and again, I'll go back to what I said earlier. Trust your instincts. I mean, rely on your instincts. You can, you can, pretty much as a parent or an educator, you can trust your instincts. So, mm-hmm. that's what I would say. I was watching something recently um, on probably PBS or something on television, and it was talk. It was a documentary talking about uh, drug addiction, and um, one of the guests made the point that, um, you know, drug and alcohol themselves are not addictive, um, that there are things happening in people's brains uh, that that makes them become addicted to drugs or alcohol. Um, so, you know, there are people who can do drugs socially or drink socially, and I'm certainly, you know, not advocating that, especially for children, um, but but people can do that without becoming addicted. And for some people, there is just something that um, that triggers addiction, uh, and that that then um, makes it very difficult for them to wean themselves from those substances. Have, is that have you seen that to be true? And and what are some of the things that you've seen in teenagers? Well, there isn't much I haven't seen. Let me try to answer your question this way. The first thing is um, just kind of remember from our, from our in our country and in our culture, drinking is normal. Mm-hmm. It is. I mean, culturally, it is okay to drink, and it is, it is encouraged. 
you look at the media, in fact, it is encouraged. So that's not an abnormal behavior. A couple of things that happens, and I don't know if I, I cannot tell you if it's I've seen I've, I've read many studies of whether it's the brain or whether it's genetics, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't matter. What matters is the behavior. But there are two traits that you can look for that happens with the people that you and I are talking about. One, the first one is, and this is the most telling trait. If a person who is going to become an alcoholic or an addict or is already an alcoholic or an addict, once they take the first drink or the drug, then they lose their ability to stop. And we've all seen, we've gone to parties, I'm in social settings, and and, there will be someone there, and after they take their first drink, I mean, they're headed down the highway of consuming more and more. And, uh, And if you suspect that's going on, then that's pretty good indication uh, but then the second the second trait also is a little bit telling also is that once that person b- begins to do that kind of behavior, then even on good days then their their thoughts and a lot of their conversation just revolves around doing it again, getting more of whatever else made them feel better it the 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 analogy I'll give you is um and especially in the world of teenagers. You, you have outstanding athletes, okay, and, and they mm-hmm. do, they all do good things, but sometimes people will do excessive things that will take them over the you know kind of over the edge. So, as in a in a in a, in a drinking society where it's normal to drink, it is not always easy to spot those people that it doesn't work for. Mhm. Mhm. So, what do you think that? parents and educators should share um, with their children about experimenting with drugs and alcohol. Uh, and, and now we're going to get to what I, to my personal opinion, which most of this has been anyway, but my personal opinion is, is uh, there isn't much that I, that I would not share with my children. I mean, the number one thing I think, Allison is just to uh, to be there. I mean, I I would want my children to talk to me about anything. I, th- I think the worst situation would be is to to not be able to talk to your children or whomever you're talking about about what's going on. So I I don't have any limits on you know, I, and I wouldn't try. And I guess I guess I'm not an advocate of uh, painting painting it as a taboo. Or don't do because that makes it attractive. Uh, mm-hmm. Rather, I'm more an advocate of you know. Uh, in our world, some people drink and some people smoke. Some people do different kinds of things. What I want, what I'd want to know is what do they think about it? Even at early ages, I would want to know what what my children think about it, and uh, before I could respond to them. Mm-hmm. So asking questions of the children, like well, you know. What are your thoughts, especially as, as images appear on television or conversations happen um, or, you know, in music lyrics, um, maybe exploring some conversation with your children and questions with your children, you know, what their thoughts are? That, that, that is absolutely correct, and I can't – I mean, you couldn't have painted a more valuable way to get information. And uh, and I'd say don't overreact, I mean, because, uh, you know – People today are just bombarded with information, and they have to select what they're going to use. And and so your your description is that. And if your child is like, uh, if your child is five or six years old, 
and enamored of some product on TV and you, and you are against that, I mean, if you rail against it right now, you might you might have it, your, your railing might have the opposite effect. So what you really want to do is have information so you can make good decisions. Mm-hmm. You know, my my daughter, as you know, Zora is seven, and when she was about five, she became completely intrigued by cigarettes. <laughs> and even now, when she sees people smoking or she sees pictures of people smoking, you know, she'll point it out and she's, um, you know, just very, very curious about it. What does it feel like? What does it taste like? Why do they do that? Um, and so <laughs> the the mom in me wants to scream at her, don't look at that, don't see it. You know, your life is perfect. Your childhood is clean and pure. Uh, <laughs> but... I know that the reality is she will leave me, you know, one day, and she has to be equipped with the language to be able to explore her curiosity, but at the same time understand um, where her boundaries have to be. Um, and so, you know, trying to engage with her um, in healthy conversation, I think, has been has been challenging and um, has has certainly shown me things about myself, <laughs> which has been an interesting journey. Um, so, you know, for, for those folks who have loved ones and, um, you know, especially their children, their teenagers who um, are showing signs of addiction, I know that there are a lot of things that um, they they should not do for their children or with their children. Uh, will you talk about what, what codependency is and what enabling is and the, the difference between them? Wow. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll try. Now, if, if I can preface it with I'm not qualified except of having been codependent, I'm not qualified mm-hmm. to diagnose it, so I, I want to get that said ahead of time. And codependency mm-hmm. is simply is... Like instead of wanting something, you know, I need it. And a perfect okay. example would be a person. There, there's a there's a famous movie. I forget the name of it. Stars a famous actor, and he walks into this room with this lady. He's has ignored, and suddenly he's turned back towards her, and he tells her that you complete me. And it's just like the most moving scene in the movie. Well. Mm-hmm. The, the, the reality is if another person completes you, it means you're incomplete. Mm. <laughs> and what codependency does says is that I need you to be complete, and I don't right. care what kind of person you are. And and, and 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 my reality, it says that's not true. I need to be a complete person before I can add anything of value to another relationship. So codependency is that, and and it's most addicts and alcoholics who we're talking about here are codependent, but that's not the issue. They can't deal with any of that until they you know, get away from the drugs and the alcohol. But uh, the codependency part is uh, difficult to diagnose, uh, difficult to um, to do anything about. And to at some degree, Allison, I, I suspect that most parents are codependent on their children mm-hmm. just because of the nature of the relationship. So... While enabling, if I could move over to that one, that's um, that's entirely another matter. Uh, one of the experiences I've had uh, was <clears throat> with adolescents 
and and you know coaching them adolescence and addiction and and then these adolescents come from all walks of life I'm talking about there's no there's no ethnic or social norm I mean, these are people from all walks of life and one of the things I used to just casually tell a, a parent or or said a parents might be okay love them but don't give them any money which they could never do <laughs> which the parents could never do <laughs> Because a we think we can change them, and b you know, um, b we 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 want to see if we can make a difference ourselves. Well, enabling is simply I continue to enable the person to do. And any addiction, or I don't care, if, I don't care what the addiction is, eventually has financial consequences. You're going to run out of money. I don't care what you're doing, and you got to find ways to get it. And some of the ways are not attractive, and some of them are not even legal to say that. Mm-hmm. But if they're getting it from, as long as they're getting it from me, then I am enabling that person to do what it is they're doing. And um, which sometimes, and sometimes that's about me and my and myself versus the other person. But to me, those are the differences. And I don't know that that made sense. It made sense to me, but you'll have to tell me if that made sense. What I was trying to dis- distinguish there. Yeah, it makes sense to me. I think. Um, you know, one of the things that you said that um, that really resonated was that there there are no ethnic or social um, typicalities, I guess, of right. of you know people and children who become addicted to substances. Um, and a lot of the focus of my work is on equity and education and making sure that um, students who um, are in particular racial categories or um, who are in a particular socioeconomic category or in a, a group of uh, students with special needs are are um, served equally um, and provided equal educational opportunity. And one of the ways that I try to do that is to really demonstrate that there's, there's this thread of humanity that connects all of us. And I think, you know, this point that, uh, addiction really sees no color and sees no mm-hmm. race. It sees, you know, truly sees nothing um, other than that humanity is is an important one. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with you, and and to the extent that that um, it's, it's it's it is it is difficult even for people who have like a certain degree of education to to differentiate between what you see in the media and then what reality of addiction is is that it is uh, it is not it is not socially or economically specific <laughs> you know it mm-hmm. is um it, it it covers all that and especially in children it is uh, you, you you can't you can't um dictate by how much money a child has or has access to or how affluent they are what their tendency is going to be to become addicted to any substance. Now they have, they may have more treatment options available to them than somebody from a lower economic strata, but they won't. You know that doesn't preclude them from having the same you know issues, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right. So what can what can educators and um, families do? Um, you know I know that they they shouldn't 
give money. Um, they shouldn't see themselves in that person or be so tied to that person that they have to be completed by that person. Um, but so, what what can they do instead? I think that's probably the most interesting question that that you've asked me, and um, and it's not an easy one to answer. Let let me tell you what I would what I would advise, or and I'm reluctant to give advice, but just this in terms of here's what I would do. If I had the least suspicion, the, the, the least inkling, okay, that any of this is going to be coming into my life through anybody in my family, I don't child especially, but anybody else, the first thing I would do, and the number one thing I would do, is try to get information myself beyond what you might see on TV or beyond what you might, you know, get by searching the Internet. I would try to get some information about what what is this thing we're, go- we're now going to be dealing with. Um, what is addiction? And I'm not talking about, deta- you know, infinite research. I'm just talking about... What I would do is I would seek out, and and, and and I would tell you in every city of the United States, it's, it's there. If you'll check with a social service agency or a local hospital that has addiction services, you might have to speak to one, two, or three people. But I would search out someone who is in that community, the addiction community, would just be willing to, quote, unquote, mentor me. And I'm not saying give me advice. I'm saying that I can ask questions of what what is the reality of addiction like? And, and if I'm going to be faced with it, what are some of the things that you think I might do? I would I would get it's getting information that I can use before I start making rational judgments about you know my child. Oh my God, my child is my child is smoking marijuana, or or what, mm-hmm. whatever we're talking about here. But I would first want to make sure that I have at least extended myself a little bit to get as much information as I can that I can trust. When I say mm-hmm. quote unquote mentorship, I mean it, information that I think I can trust to somebody who has no agenda that would just be willing to share that information. And I guarantee you, they're there if you just seek them out. They would love to just you know just give you anything that you that 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 you're looking for that would help you do that. That would be my number one thing that I would advise. Mm-hmm. And should you involve your child in that that quest for information? Or is that something you do on your own? I will. I'll leave that to the person to decide. I would probably. I, I tend. I tend to want to have the information first, but that, mm-hmm. that could be one of my shortcomings too. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, I would advise the person, educator, or parent to make that decision at the moment. You know, if, if it's mm-hmm. a, if it's a fourteen-year-old responsible teenager, and you want them to know the whole picture, why not? I, I don't see anything against it. Why not help them? Have them help you discover what's what this is what you know what this information is going to be. Right. So I I'd say I'm going to leave it to the person to decide, but it, I, I don't see a harm either way. Mm-hmm. Um, um, there's a a very wise man that I spoke with recently who actually will be on the show in a couple of weeks, um, mm-hmm. and he's the director of a private school here in the D.C. area. Um, and he has also taught in um, in Baltimore, Maryland, in uh, you know uh, areas of concentrated poverty, uh, with you know population student populations of 100% Black and Latino children, um, 
and he's talked about, you know, the similarities between children who are at opposite ends of the spectrum. So children who have uh, the most wealth um, and children who have the least and how they demonstrate the same needs because they are um, can be neglected in, in similar ways um, and seek attention in similar ways um, and how there is an uh, avoidance generally from uh you know their their kind of immediate support structure to talk about issues especially issues related to addiction um have you seen similar parallels and um you know what is the impact of avoiding this conversation about addiction well, let me get to the second part last. But on the first part, if we go back to what I said earlier when we talked about codependency, if you if you will accept a simple explanation of codependency as simply being I have an emotional or spiritual void inside of me that I'm trying to fill with somebody or something, then that's prevalent in, in both sets of people. They're trying to make up for some lack of intimacy or or nurturing or something in their lives and they're filling it with other things and uh, <clears throat> now that that doesn't necessarily translate into addiction but it does give you an idea of what happens in the beginning of the experimentation process when mm-hmm. I'm experimenting with different things to uh to fill that void in other words I don't feel complete as a person whether it's in school or on the basketball court or the dance floor, so I need something to augment what you know, make me feel a little bit better. And then here along comes here's some some substance that, that does that. So I think mm-hmm. that's what they have in common. Now what happens beyond that is you know whether or not to become addicts or not. That's not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the last part of the question was, tell me again what the last part of the question was, so I'll make sure I got it right. Um, so have you seen parallels and then what are what is the impact of avoiding this conversation about addiction? <clears throat> I I've seen the the parallels because here's the males and I have I have a um I don't want to call it a tainted view, but, but I have a mm-hmm. view of the world that's that is strictly what you talked about earlier, the threat of humanity. And I just mm-hmm. believe that, you know, all humans have share, you know, uncommon similar things in terms of, you know, love and needing and all that stuff. I think the parallels are there. Um, I don't know that I can answer the last part of that. Um, I don't have a good answer for that, so I'm probably not going to answer that. I'm I'm going to leave that one because I just don't know. The answer is I don't know. Um, but maybe I, let, 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 me offer, let me come at it this direction. <clears throat> As a parent, because I am one, <laughs> As a parent, to me, it is the same as if one of my if my nine year old child comes and wants to talk about sex, mm-hmm. and then suddenly I become uncomfortable, and I start fumbling and I make up make believe answers. Mm-hmm. Well, that hasn't served either one of us well. Right. So, if that that same nine year old child or fourteen year old or fifteen year old child. Maybe they won't even come up with up with it directly about addiction. They just want to talk, you know, they, they kind of give you a backhanded comment 
about smoking marijuana or something, and, you, and we avoid it because I'm uncomfortable with it. Well, I've done the same thing. I'm not really avoiding it so much for them as I'm avoiding it for myself. So I guess, I guess I have answered it. Of, uh, I think I think the impact is detrimental. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did I did I get that answer? Yes. <laughs> okay. Um. So you mentioned earlier, you know, the the television portrayal of addiction, and you know, we've all seen the movies and the television shows and news coverage of the the kind of worst side of addiction. But for those parents and, and those educators who are supporting um, children who are maybe more functioning addicts, um, so they're, they're going to school regularly, they're doing well enough in school, um, and we'll say, you know, I, clearly I can't have a problem because I'm I'm doing okay. Um, what what should happen there? Again, it's it's. Uh, I wish I could give you a black and white answer, and uh, and I can't. But let me try to give you the answer this way. Um, the thing about addiction, let's say let's say that I and I'm, I'll make up this example to try to, to answer your question. Let's say that I have a child or a person, and they are 13, and they have addictive tendencies, which mm-hmm. don't go to dress, and, and they wind up being a functioning student. Okay, and we get through high school, and and I start, and I want to tell myself that the world is fine, and then they go to college, away to college, and they have no, they lose their structure or they have an emotional event that sends them over the edge, and then suddenly they wind up in circumstances that are way out of beyond control. Um, my answer is, is that, um, unfortunately, it, it's one of the things in human behavior that never gets better, it only gets worse. It either gets, it either gets resolved or it only gets worse. It doesn't get better on its own. It is, as a matter of fact, it's progressive. Uh, even when even when a person might even I, I know of um, a particular person who I, I know I know I know in reality of a particular person who was an addict and they stayed away from their addiction for 25 years mm-hmm. and uh, and then for some reason they returned to it out of some unpredictable circumstance and immediately they were like three times as bad as they ever were. So it is progressive in the sense that it, left untreated, it, it doesn't. It might it might disappear from the surface, but it doesn't go away. And, and, and if and when it comes back, it's probably going to be much more close to being lethal than before. So, how do people know when to seek residential therapy? So, when when a um, a program like yours, like Steps to Life, is what is appropriate versus, you know, maybe more outpatient <clears throat> mental therapy. How do people make that distinction? Uh, all of the people, all of the residents here are referred. None of them come here to begin the process. Mm-hmm. They are, they, they're they referred have gone by a doctor. To, they're referred by doctors, agencies, hospitals, the community, you know, um, and to a small extent, the correctional uh, community. 
but but they're all referrals. They've all had some issues, and uh, and I can't tell you they've all dealt with them successfully. But they've all had some issues, and now they're trying to to find solutions to those issues. Mm-hmm. So, a uh, a person that's looking for help for themselves just needs to start at the beginning. And, and what I mean by that is start anywhere with anybody who, who who might can help. Even if they don't, they can probably get you in contact with somebody who can. I mean, start with, you know, get the phone book out. The phone books don't exist anymore, but get Google, um, you know, addiction treatments and just start calling or contacting, and eventually you're going to wind up because the solutions are pretty much the same. And then you can start building your own, you know, relief structure from right. people that you make contact right. with. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wonder if you would would share with us some of your victories with teenagers who have abused drugs or alcohol or are addicted to <clears throat> drugs or alcohol. What are some of the victories that you've seen? Oh, my. Uh, okay. <laughs> to, to see the victories, first you have to see... Let me just describe, in terms of you can say, you know, some of the things. Let me give you one situation, then I'll tell you maybe what, what the victory kind of looks like. Uh, at one point, I was working with a 14-year-old boy, um, and it doesn't matter color or, or structure or social and all that stuff. And at the same facility, and I was working at a facility, and at the same facility in a different unit was a 13-year-old girl and they both were being treated for addiction, but they had just parented it. They had just produced a child. Mm. So a 14-year-old addict and a 13-year-old addict have a child. Mm. And neither one of these children not only is not equipped for, you know, parenthood, right. they, they, can't, they can't even deal with being addicts yet, you know. Mm-hmm. And so... The chances for for that child to, to to have any kind of chance in the world is extremely slight, and I can't tell you what happened because I didn't I didn't get to stay with them all the way through. So, mm-hmm. if you use that as a contrast, and today I see I have I I, I see nineteen and twenty year olds <clears throat> from all of the social levels by you know for 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 information purposes, all the social levels. And what they are is they are devoted to helping other young people with their addictions, which is phenomenal given that the – and what they do is they do things like they put on canoe rides, you know, weekend Mm -hmm. events, sober events, um, those kinds of things. I mean, seminars. And I'm talking about these young people organize this and do this themselves. And when you sure. when you consider the uh, you know the social structure of where you know there's so much for kids to do on the other end of the spectrum, to me that's an amazing example of people who have understood you know what it what they were faced with and have gotten a handle on it. Now they want to go back and see if they can help another person. Mm. And I don't personally count that as a victory, but in the scheme of things, that's one of life's greatest victories. Right. Are there 
are there youth-specific organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous? Uh, none of those, uh, and, and they're probably the last I heard. Those are called twelve-step programs, and the last mm-hmm. unofficial tally that I heard that in our country there's probably fifty different twelve-step programs. Tobacco's anonymous, uh, nicotine anonymous, uh, overeaters, you know, and I'm most anonymous. Um, but what I know about those is, is that none of those are youth-specific. Mm-hmm. All of those are just people specific, and anybody at any time is welcome. Now, within those groups, though, I do know that some some people themselves align themselves along, you know, age groups or to do certain things and make things happen. So, but mm-hmm. n- none of those groups are, are are have any specifications that I understand, as far as I understand it, of what they require for membership. I think their requirement simply is. You just want to get better. Mm-hmm. Well, my guest is Rufus Brown, the director of Steps to Life, a transitional housing program in Indianapolis, Indiana. He's been counseling people who are addicted to drugs or alcohol for at least 10 years. He's also my dad. Thank you so much for joining me this morning, Rufus. Allison, thank you for your gracious invitation. God bless you. God bless you. You are now officially certified know-it-alls about teenage addiction. Remember to follow Know-It-All, the ABCs of Education on Blog Talk Radio. My website is allisonbrownconsulting.com. Follow me at Allison R. Brown on Twitter and find ABC on Facebook. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful week.